Good evening. The Old Testament reading tonight can be found on page 2 of the bulletin. It is Jonah 1, verses 5 through 10. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. Father, we are a needy bunch here, whether we realize it or not. And we need to hear your living voice through your living word. And we know that's only possible if you should uh, rightly speak through your word. And you should give us your spirit, everybody here. And we thank you that you've gathered us for that purpose. In Christ's name, amen. Our topic is how the people of God, the family of God, are transformed when God takes them on a mission. And we're doing that by looking at a Hebrew prophet named Jonah. God calls Jonah on a mission he doesn't like and he doesn't want. And he does what we often do when we're asked to do something we don't like or want. He avoids it. In fact, he goes, actually, if you look at a map, almost directly opposite of where God calls him to go. That's how determined he is. But yet God, in his severe mercy, catches Jonah on a boat among some Canaanite pagan sailors in the middle of a storm. And it's in the middle of that storm that shards of light begin to break through and lessons begin to get learned. The sailors, the prophets, ourselves. Many times after a great and fierce storm, like the one that the Bahamas just suffered through, After people get through the shock and after they begin to recover slowly, it's natural that there are reflections. There are questions about, well, what lessons can we learn? For it might, perhaps it's, we need to have more generators at the nursing homes or the gas stations. Maybe it's, we need better communication on our infrastructure, the sewage pipes, the water treatment plants. Maybe it's we need to communicate better with the homeowners that 
when they're trimming their trees before the storm and they leave the debris out. They shouldn't do it because it becomes a flying projectile in a storm. Right? Lots of lessons learned. But the same is true when you face an emotional or spiritual storm. Maybe it's a crisis in your health. Maybe it's the prospect of homelessness. Maybe it's losing a job. In this passage, there are two lessons that jump out at us. And what I'd like us to briefly consider today. The first is, avoiding God's mission comes at a price. And the second one is, attending to God's mission demands involvement. So let's, let's look at those two things together, okay? First of all, avoiding God's mission will come at a price. The price for Jonah is a numbed, hardened heart. We recount in verse 4, Jonah is told by God to go to Nineveh, where Assyrians live, and to preach repentance, but also the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. And yet, Jonah doesn't. We pick up the story on the boat. He's bought passage. And uh, from what we can tell, the best we can tell, remember these narratives are paraphrases. So even as, you know, we're, we're sort of given headlines here. Once he's on board, he descends to the lower quarters where the passengers could rest. And as the storm begins to worsen, the sailors have to go down to that area to find more cargo to throw overboard. And as they do, they happen upon Jonah, who's dead to the world. I mean, uh, not literally, but figuratively. In fact, the language that's used in this text to say that he went down, he had gone down, is often used to denote uh, going to death, to die. And figuratively, right, uh, his career is dead. As a prophet, his community is dead. He's cut off from everybody he knows. One theologian says that what has overtaken Jonah is the sleep of sorrow. Depression. I was thinking about a song lyric by uh, the songwriter Ashley Cleveland, and it's called Up From the Ether. You know, ether was one of the first, um, one of the first anesthetics that they used, anesthesia they used in surgery. And this is what she says. Forty winks in a crawl space, wrapped up tight, under the ether, out like a light. Sleeping was my best defense through every hard experience. Maybe uh, you have faced a bitter disappointment in your life. It's a breakup. It's a failure. It's some sort of loss. And the only thing you feel like doing is numbing yourself. Maybe you numb yourself through alcohol, maybe you numb yourself through sex, maybe you numb yourself through binge-watching TV, or maybe you just sleep. It's your defense. And the cause of this numbness is present in our passage. How does Jonah get to this place? Remember, Jonah, while he's fleeing a mission, is first and foremost fleeing what? 
the presence of the Lord. He's fleeing God, right? The New Testament tells us in the book of Ephesians that when people flee God, one of the consequences is a callous, hard heart. The more we distance ourselves from what God wants us to do. Another sign of this hard heart is his refusal to go on the mission. Here you have this people that really are lost to the grace of God, steeped in a lot of bad stuff, and he essentially says, it ain't my problem. I'm not going. And his reluctance to help even as the storm rages on. This is one of the blaring ironies in this text. You've got these pagan Canaanites who, by the way, had a pretty wicked religion. They would sacrifice babies. It was a dark thing. You had these pagan Canaanites responding with more empathy and compassion than the prophet of Israel, Jonah. Now, at this point, you might say, can you really blame him? I mean, look at this God, a God that you know, brings storms upon people as punishment or some sort of discipline. And it's true. You look at the text and it says that God hurled the storm. The, 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 the picture is someone hurling a spear. He's aiming. But he's aiming at Jonah. You know, while every natural disaster, like the terrible one we just saw, is under God's control, not everyone is personally purposed. In fact, the only reason we know this one is, is because the Bible says so. That's why we're not supposed to be divining from storms, I wonder what judgment God is bringing. We don't know. We have no idea what God is doing in this storm. He permits it. But another thing we reckon with is just the world that we live in. The Bible teaches when sin entered the created world, there is a volatility that took place, which means if you live next to water, sometimes it's going to flood. If you live next to a volcano, sometimes it's going to erupt. We live in a creation that groans. And yet, even so, it's not without purpose. It's not without purpose in the lives of the sailors or Jonah. I included a quote for you from Tim Keller. And he says, The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of our sin. But it does teach us, for Christians, every difficulty can help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. Storms can wake us up to truths we would otherwise never see. And I would say two of those truths are this. The first one is humility. Anybody that's weathered a storm in their life and hasn't hardened over realizes, well, I'm vulnerable. I'm weak. We often, so often every day, especially I think in the city and uh, maybe sort of uh, what our city is known for and what it draws, we have this feeling that I'm immortal. I'm calling the shots. I'm invincible. I'm commanding my reality. And storms will wake us up to the fact that, no, that's not true. I'm weak. I'm a mist. My life will go before my eyes faster than I believe. But second of all, storms show the mercy of God. Even in this dark storm, there is mercy. It's mercy that will eventually find the sailors. It's mercy that will eventually find those in Nineveh. Will it find Jonah? Will it find you? Will it find me? 
But ultimately, the reason we know this is because the greatest storm ever recorded in history, the storm of God's wrath that came upon Jesus Christ when he was crucified, that darkness that enveloped the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, whereby he was sacrificing and atoning his life for people like Jonah and for people like the Canaanites and for people like you and me, that shows us that mercy is found in storms. So you and I can look for it there. But this mercy is far from softening Jonah's heart at this point. And the price exacted is not just upon him, it's upon other people because we live in community with one another. So the sailors are affected and other people on the boat, aren't they? Because we don't live just unto ourselves. They pay an emotional price. You know, when events come upon us unexpectedly and we're not unprepared, or rather we are unprepared, there is a certain shock we experience, a certain trauma. These are seasoned sailors, but they are completely taken off guard. How do we know that? You go a couple uh, verses later, and it says that they tried to row back to shore, which means they weren't far from shore, which also means they had not set out that long ago, which also means as they read the weather, it was clear skies. They understood this ain't normal. That's what you know, sends them on their hunt they go, there's God, somebody's God's got to be before that. In those days, uh, polytheists, you'd have your personal God, you would have your family God, you would have your national God. They handled the biggest weight. And that's why he asked Jonah, give us the details. We need to know who your God is. Jonah confirms their suspicion. Again, we're just giving the abridged version. And he, again, ironically says, I am the Lord God who made the land and the sea. No, he didn't say that. He said he worships the Lord God. If he would have said that, he would have really been in trouble. But the Lord God, right? The land and the sea. And um, as they come upon Jonah, as they come upon Jonah, you know, he is basically just sort of sleeping, right? They hear the story, and essentially, uh, you could translate it by them saying, Oh no, you did what? You did what? They're more spiritually attuned than he is. Again, you have these pagans challenging him on this. You see it in their action, but you also see it in their attitudes. Because their instinct is to pray and get everybody praying. This is one of the reasons they're mad. Here you have them summoning the prophet of Israel to pray. They had a sense of their weakness. They had a sense of their weakness. I read something this past week that spoke to that, and I wanted to read it to you. Have you ever prayed for something with no idea how to proceed? You'll be encouraged to know that helplessness means that you're on the right track. You begin to pray when you say, I don't know. The first thing you need is the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit of God. The, sec- the last thing you need is the Holy Spirit. And the thing you need in the middle is the Holy Spirit. When you're discouraged and down and don't know what to pray, ask God to send the Spirit to control you, to convict you, to cleanse you, and to be bread for you. In the p- position of humility, you can receive that in power. This is what's modeled 
to Jonah. And there was also a financial cost, right? Let's not overlook the fact that they're hurling cargo overboard. That's going to cost them. There will be there after this storm passes and Jonah gets spit up on the right and the Ninevehs hear the gospel. These guys still have to go home and say, we're not getting paid as much this month or maybe even this year. There is a cost when we avoid God's mission. I was thinking about a time um, and here's uh, this idea of uh, the instinct of the Canaanites. And sometimes the instinct of the watching world. I mentioned to you my first mission trip um, was in Africa. And one day, myself and some of my teammates were taking a matatu. Those are one of those private minivans uh, to to go. uh, I forget where we were going to meet some people. But it was sitting at the bottom of this immense steep hill. And, uh, you know, we pay our money, we get up, we're going, we're going, we're going. And all of a sudden, it starts to sound like a roller coaster at the top, you know. <laughs> but at least with a roller coaster, you're like, I'm going to go over. And we're getting to the top, we're getting to the top, and the thing just dies. And we just start racing backward. And everybody is crying out to their various gods. Everybody is just praying and screaming. And, I, you know, and I, it sort of it woke me up like I better pray. And as I was praying, I looked. There was a sign over the driver that said, uh, what was it? Uh, Don't panic, uh, driver in total control. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's looking through the crowd and he gets us down to the bottom. But anybody with their good sense would have prayed. And so when they come up in Jonah and they go, what in the world's going on with you? They know there's a deeper thing happening. The mission of God is meant to bring us to that place. But secondly, and lastly, attending to God's mission demands involvement. The book of Jonah is divided into two units, and they're they're mirrors of one another. The first records his flight, you know, him taken off from God. The other one records him in Nineveh. So we have two records of close encounters for Jonah with people that are culturally racially and nationally different from him. And in both cases, he is dismissive and not helpful in his response. He others them in the worst way. You know, you're not my nationality, you're not my gender, you're not my political persuasion, so what do you got to do with me? This is essentially... Somehow, Jonah's religion had created a pride in him that made him heartless and empathetic-less toward people in need. I was thinking about when Dr. Diane Langberg spoke to our church, our network, this past winter. And she started by recounting a story, and I heard her, uh, she had told it once before where she was visiting uh, the Cape Coast slave dungeons off of West Africa. And in this one particular place, if you're there, you might remember this story. In this one particular slave dungeon, a chapel was built on top of it. And so here you had people praying and singing and reading scripture and slaves getting beaten to be quiet during the service. And you hear that story, and you think, how can that even be? How can that be? How can people be so blind? But then, you know, we could fast forward to our own context and country, right? 
How many people you think that had slaves and supported slavery were also sincere professing Christians? Some of them were actually ministers, right? And again, the thought would be, how in the world could they have faith and sincere faith and participate in that? But maybe the question we ought to be asking is, how in the world am I doing the same thing today? How is that happening to me today? Lest we think we're any less prone than sincere Christians, professing Christians. Could it be that our darkness could be that major? I'll be honest with you. I don't like to think about it because there's still part of me that wants to think I'm a pretty good person. I'm glad I'm a progressive and modern. I wouldn't have done that sort of thing. But then I got to look at the prophet, the Hebrew prophet who spoke the words of the Lord, who knew the Lord and somehow his religion. And Jonah is not referred to as a false prophet. He's not referred to someone who is apostate from God, but somehow he's able to stand before people in need of another culture and race and be numb and not care. You know, one of the ministries we have at our church to help us with this is called a cultural intelligence ministry. In fact, there's an interest meeting tonight after church. One of the reasons we have it is because we're presuming, I don't see, I need help. But there are a few things that the Lord does for Jonah to help him, and he does them to help us too. And I think if we could commit ourselves to these, we might have a better shot. The first thing is, it's something called theologians, which theologians call common grace. A lot of you know what that means. Some of you may not. But it means that God, even though the world is in rebellion against God, again, and you've heard me, well, you might say, wait, what do you say? There's tons of religions. I would, I would maintain to you that uh, men like to create religions that are basically just a reflection of themselves where God is their moral peer, right? So I, I would say, we've got a world that, yeah, I want God, I don't want God. But in that world, God bestows this grace upon everybody and every living thing, undeserved kindness. Every time we have a beautiful fall day or spring day, and it's sunny in D.C., and it's just quiet, and I see people enjoying, you know, walking along the Potomac, and I see neighbors having block parties, I think, common grace, Right? It can't save people. It can't save your soul. It won't save your soul. But I'll tell you, the world would be intolerable without God's common grace. What does it include? It includes things like God causing there to be some moral order. Also, the fact that people are made in his image and he gives them talents and skills. Jonah is dependent on the common grace shown to these soldiers, or sailors, to get where he's going. You know, I, uh, when I was on sabbatical, I needed a new uh, prescription. So I went into the store, and imagine when the person was kind of doing the thing where they're, you know, lining up your eyes. Imagine I would have said, excuse me, are you a Christian? Because I really need these to be right. And your perspective matters. What is your perspective? And then when I went to pick them up, I would have said, excuse me, do Christians make these glasses? Because I really don't know if I want these glasses if Christians didn't make them. Right? You understand that to be foolishness. I hope you do. I was hoping for a little bit more laughter on that point, to be honest with you. 
But I should, in humility, think it was just not that funny as opposed that you believe that's true. (laughs) You get the point. God has shed his common grace. And he's shed it upon these soldiers. In fact, there's unfortunately more visible sign of his common grace in those pagan sailors than there is the special grace of God in the prophet. So one, we recognize God's common grace leads us to this, the second one. And that is a call to listen. To listen to people. Actually be humble, respectful, and listen to them. Jonah... God places Jonah in a place where he has to listen to people that he would dismiss and blow off. He has to. He's trapped on a boat. Where else is he going to go? In fact, God uses them to witness to the prophet. They're the ones that are basically going, don't you understand the fear of the Lord, prophet? Even the idea of what you're doing, and as we go later into the text, we'll see that that faith actually matures into saving faith. The world has a right to evaluate the integrity of the church. The world has the right to evaluate the integrity of Christians, to ask questions. And it hasn't been few times that God will use the world to actually stir and wake up his people. When they have fallen asleep, just like he's waking up Jonah from the deep bows of the boat. I was having a conversation online with a group of ministers, and one of them said, Hey, can you all help me understand there's a term that I hear flung about called social justice warriors. Right? And he said, you know, he didn't really understand. He said, is that complimentary? And one of the guys said, no, it's actually used pejoratively by people that sort of look down on people committed to social justice. And I would say there's plenty of people within the church that critique it. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we're we're, we're not just about social justice here. We're about gospel deeds, biblical justice. But I'll tell you, before the church begins to critique, it needs to ask itself, am I doing anything? Right? Do we listen? But thirdly, and the last point is this, that God has not separated the flourishing of the church and the flourishing of the world. This time he's actually bound them together. When crime plagues the city, when bad water plagues the city, when social unrest plagues the city, we are all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Jonah's private faith is publicly no good at all. It's not helping. He doesn't want to work for the good of the pagans, but he's going to have to. God's going to make him. So we can learn. But if Jonah would have read his scriptures, just like we should read our scriptures, he would have said, well, wait, oh yeah. When God blessed Abraham, the father of all believers, he said, your blessing will ultimately be for who? The nations, for all peoples, every tribe, tongue, and nation. He would also have seen Abraham pleading for Sodom, a wicked place. Because he knew the flourishing of his life was bound to the flourishing of his community. And then you could go to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah would, would, would follow Jonah. But it's after the people of God have been trafficked into Babylon, a brutal empire. And God says to them, I want you to plant gardens and build houses. I want you to beautify the neighborhood. And then I want you to pray for the prosperity of the city. 
Why? Because in its prosperity is your prosperity. He's linked them together. And of course, the great story of this, we had read the Good Samaritan. Where you have those that are part of Israel walk away. But you have someone outside of Israel caring about the good of their neighbor. But despite Jonah's heart, God's working on him. He's working on you and I. Uh, From the beginning of Grace D.C., um, we had a couple convictions. They were part of our core values. They still are. Uh, One of them was this idea of listening and dialoguing. Listening to the culture around us. We, we wanted to have a service where even if you're, we expect every week there are people, skeptics and doubters here. So if that's you, you're welcome. We, we want you here. And we're laboring to speak and act in a way that is respectful and doesn't treat other views into straw men. And if we're doing a bad job, I'd love for you to come up and say, I think you're doing a bad job. Because God had called us to listen. But the other thing was, we were going to serve the city. We weren't going to use it because the good of, we understood it's not just saving souls. The good of Washington, D.C. is bound to the good of God's people. That's what God has said. And so, here we are on our own mission, the mission of God. And uh, we are just as tempted, brothers and sisters. But we, all, we also are just as graced. God has poured out mercy on us. So let's pray that God helps us in our storm. We do thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you teach us in uh, your holy word. And we thank you for the relevance of it today. And for our brothers and sisters of the faith, whose lives are laid bare so we could learn from their examples. Would you help us, Lord, to um, be a witnessing, serving community in Christ's name. Amen.